Well, I'm thankful for the opportunity to uh, come and share my testimony. Uh, some of what I shared tonight would have been um, a part of the testimony that I shared at the meet and greet. Um, if you'll remember, the, the day before uh, I preached in view of a call, we had a meet and greet reception in the gym, and some of y'all came. Not all of you were able to. Uh, but it was going very well. You guys talked to me, and I talked back to you, and it created quite the line. And so some folks didn't get to stay, and others um, waited for a very long time. And as a result, um, I didn't have the opportunity to share um, as much as possibly I, I could have. So it seems fitting that the first night that I'm here, on a Sunday night, that I would share my testimony. Would you guys be interested in hearing that? That's great, because I didn't prepare anything else. Um, if you could, though, uh, if you turn in your Bible to Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. Uh, Psalm chapter 37, verse 4. We, um, we will be, uh, I will be sharing my testimony, but um, we, we still need the truth of God's Word, because it, it carries, um, it carries not only in teaching and preaching, but it also carries in sharing of our testimony. In Psalm chapter 37, verse 4, uh, really, if we could just momentarily look at verses 3 through 6, verse 4 is my life verse uh, for my family. Carly and I, we, we hold to verse 4, but in chapter 37, verse 3, God's Word says, "'Trust in the Lord.'" And do good, dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord, trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Now, I don't want to preach all of these verses because this is good material for another sermon, but just to point a couple of of. Uh, lessons out for you. Junior Hill, have any of you heard the name Junior Hill? He's an evangelist, uh, a Southern Baptist evangelist. I'm not sure if he's still living. If he is, he's, he's quite old and not in great health. But he used to say about Psalms 37, 4, if you get your desires before you get your delight, you'll never get delight in your desires. Uh, you hear that? Let me say it again for you. Uh, 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord, which means that your delight should first be in who? The Lord. Um, and he will then give you the desires of your heart. And Junior Hill would say, if you get your desires before you get your delight, then you'll never get delight in your desires. And that's a problem that some of us have. We seek to be satisfied, fulfilled, and find our contentment, meaning, and identity in the desires that we want of this world, rather than finding our identity and commitment in the Lord, and then allowing him to give us our desires. I grew up uh, in a pastor's home. My dad, thank, oh, what, how special was that for my family to have my mom and dad here with us? I'm thankful for his church. Uh, he serves on staff at a church in Canton, Georgia. Um, and I'm so thankful for his church allowing him to be off to come and be with us today. And, and it was so special for me and my family that he could participate with our deacons in praying for me and for this ministry and for this new day. And so thank you, church. I don't know how many of you had a part in that, but thank you all for, for that. It's, it, 
it really is special, but he was a pastor, uh, he was a lead senior pastor for many years, and so I heard my dad preaching week in and week out, and he was evangelistic in his preaching, um, and he was faithful to preaching God's word, and um, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, born in Jackson, Mississippi, grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee, hearing my dad preach, and when I was about 11 years old, <clears throat> When I was about 11 years old, um, I went to my dad in, uh, in their, my mom and dad's bedroom and told him that I wanted to get saved and that I wanted to have a relationship with the Father. And my dad shared the gospel with me, and I cried, and he cried, and we prayed. And it was a sweet moment um, with a preacher dad and his son and this salvation moment. A couple of weeks later, uh, my dad baptized me, and, and I was a believer, and I was baptized. And then... Uh, in the, those later elementary school years and then in middle school, I sort of developed this, uh, this mantra for life or this really driving, uh, driving statement that I think is not unique to me, but I just remember that it resonated and this is what it was. I, I had this drive. I, I wanted to do something that was unique and special. In particular, I wanted to do something that no one else had ever done before. That was my desire. I wanted to accomplish or do something that no one else had ever done before. And I remember that it drove me to really pursue excellence in everything that I participated in, whether it be extracurricular or academic um, or otherwise. I, I just remember being driven because I wanted to say that I'd accomplished something that had never been accomplished before. And so I started to give myself to academics, did really good in school, um, didn't do so great before I made this decision at 11, but I did pretty good after that. Um, not to brag, but elementary school was a breeze. Um, and then I, I gave myself also into athletics. Um, in East Tennessee, where I came from, we had um, wrestling. <laughs> Ricky Joe's back there nodding his head. He's like, uh-huh. We had, uh, we wrestled, we had wrestling. Um, not like what you watch on TV, you know, not the fake stuff. Sorry to break your hearts, but, um, but, but wrestling um, within the local school. And so I gave myself, I, I started wrestling, which was good because I, was I wasn't a very big child. I was really small. Um, I don't think that I broke 100 pounds till I was like a junior in high school. So it was good for me to have an, a sport that was weight graded rather than age graded. Um, and so I wrestled and gave myself to wrestling and, um, and did pretty good at the 96-pound weight class um, and made it to the state championship every year that I wrestled through middle school. Um, and I just remember, like, again, having this drive. I want to do something that no one else had ever done before, and we would participate in these state championship tournaments. And then we'd get to the medal ceremonies, and I would remember looking to my right and to my left and seeing other young men who had also accomplished the same thing and thinking, you know what, this is great, but I'm not alone. There's someone else here. And so I move into high school, and uh, I start to kind of give up on sports. I played, um, I played baseball, but I was really small and not that great. I played football, but there were a few very muscular guys that put an end to that career uh, after the first practice. Um, I was just not a fan. I, some of you guys have great uh, pain tolerance. I'm not a fan of being hurt, all right? Um, and so I, I actually have this one friend named Chris Tilson from Knoxville who was, I mean, he sprouted far, far before anyone else. And I remember in the first, uh, in the first practice, our coach, this is freshman football, okay? Y'all play football here? Okay. Um, 
I remember being in the first practice and our coach, you know, this kind-hearted, wicked man that he was, had me and Chris Tilson line up to do what they called the Oklahoma drill. You know what that is? That's just when you put two young men across from each other and see who can survive running into the other one at full speed. Um, And so he lines me up. I'm like 94 pounds um, with Chris Tilson. Um, who hit puberty in the first grade, probably. Um, he had been shaven since he was four. And this huge, huge guy and me, we line up and we lay on the ground. He blows the whistle and we jump up and I'm laying on my back and Chris is standing over me. And then the coach is like, come on, Thomas, let's do it again. And I'm like, well, do we need to? Um, So we line up again, he blows the whistle, and I get run over again, and he's like, come on, you got to toughen up. And I'm like, no, I don't. Um, And so he lines us up again, and that was was my first and last practice in high school football, Um, never to go back to it. And so I didn't play football. Basketball wasn't going to happen. I was also too short for that sport. Um, And so I gave myself to two extracurriculars. Um, The first was to swimming. Turns out you can be short and still succeed at swimming. Um, And also it's not very painful, Uh, except for exhausting. It's not painful. So I thought that's a great sport for me. Um, Plus I was a high school boy and being able to participate in a co-ed sport's not a bad idea. Um, Being in the pool with a bunch of young ladies, we're not going there, but um, it it was incentive for me. And so I swam throughout high school, and it turns out that if you work hard enough at a sport like swimming, that you can do well. And so each of my four years in high school, I was able to make it to the state tournament and swimming and swam um, competitively. And we'd get, each year, we'd get to the state championship, and we would compete in these meets, and we would get to the medal uh, ceremony. We'd be standing up on the podium and the platforms and be so proud that you worked hard and you got to this point, but then you'd look to your right, and you'd look to your left, and you would see that there were other young men there, and you would think, this is great, but it's not something that hasn't been done before. Uh, I gave myself also in high school to, um, to band. I played in the band. Do I, have any, uh, do I have any band folks in here? We are a breed of our own, all right? Um, I was in the band. I played the trumpet in the band. And when I, was, um, when I was 14, when I was 14, my band director asked me if I wanted to try out for uh, drum and bugle corps. Do any of you know what a drum and bugle corps is? Yeah, y'all do know what it is? Okay, so Drum and Bugle Corps, if you don't know, it's marching band on steroids. Um, They have these marching bands that are located throughout the country, um, and you try out for them, and if you make the band, then you give yourself to basically going on tour around the country competing with all these other bands in competitions um, for two to three months. During the summertime, you load up on charter buses, and you literally just drive around the country competing every couple of days in these highly intense marching band competitions. And so um, I went to uh, Jacksonville State University in Alabama to compete uh, or to try out for um, the Spirit of Atlanta Drum and Bugle Corps, and somehow I made it, um, which was incredibly I was just incredibly thankful to make the, the band. I was also incredibly thankful, looking back on it, that my parents let me do this. Um, Because I tried out at 14. My band director took me. We drove um, in his pickup truck down to the audition, and I auditioned, and I I made the band. And then my parents let me get on a bus with mostly college students and tour around the country for over two months to compete with this 
banned. Um, and there's, I don't know, looking back on it now, I don't know if I would ever let my children do this. Um, but we competed and we had an incredible experience um, with the Spirit of Atlanta. And that year, the, Nash, the World Championship, which we qualified for, was in Madison, Wisconsin. And that year, we competed all summer, and we qualified for the World Championship, and we go to Madison, Wisconsin to compete in the World Championship uh, Drum and Bugle Corps competition, um, and we make it to the final round, and we compete in the final, and we don't win it, but we medal in the World Championship, and it's just an incredible sight, um, being 15 at the time, going into Camp Randall Stadium, which is the, the football stadium at the University of Wisconsin, and walking into a 70,000-seat uh, Coliseum Stadium that is full of people cheering for marching band, and then being able to compete in front of this crowd, and then at the closing ceremony, standing there with my bandmates and receiving a medal for, uh, for being a top-ranked band in the world. It's just amazing experience, incredible experience. But they're receiving the medal, and they walk around, and they put the medal over your, sh- over your uh, head onto your neck, and you look to your right, and you look to your left, and you think, this is, this is really great, but it's not something that's never been done before. After, um, after that experience, and then throughout high school, I, I started to sort of give up on this, this dream. Like, I was so driven. I was just one of those young people that was just so driven in, in academics, and I was so driven um, in extracurriculars. But really, after pushing myself as a young person and trying to achieve something that had never d- been done before, I, I sort of gave up and just sort of drifted through uh, just being a teenage boy. Um, and not really caring, not really driving or pushing myself to live up to um, what it should be as a Christian or what I should be as a young man. And so um, I didn't uh, wander off into drugs or anything of that nature. I just sort of settled into mediocrity, uh, mediocrity and, and really gave up pursuing much of anything until my senior year when I got senioritis in high school. Uh, that's commonplace here, I've learned, uh, where seniors in high school just sort of give up. And I really stopped caring and stopped trying and really embraced the stereotypical reputation of a preacher's child. Um, I was rebellious and wanted to skip church and didn't want to go where I was supposed to go and do the things that I was supposed to do. But my parents drug me along and I finally made it through high school. My freshman year of college, I was attending Pellissippi State Technical Community College, which is in East Tennessee. Um, and my dad was pastoring a church called Beaverdam Baptist Church in Knoxville, and he, his church and another church, Salem Baptist Church, were hosting an um, evangelistic crusade, evangelistic revival, and they had an evangelist named Ken Freeman. Ken Freeman was a family friend of ours. He has preached all over the country, and he just has the gift of evangelism. And let me just say, um, we are all responsible for evangelism, all right, we are all responsible for evangelism, but there are some who have the gift of evangelism. And what's the difference? Uh, people with the specific gifting of evangelism just have a unique ability to draw the harvest. All right, we're all responsible for evangelizing. We're all responsible for sharing the gospel. But there are some people within the local church who have a unique gifting that when they preach or share the gospel and then extend an invitation, people just flood forward. 
And Ken Freeman's one of those guys. Um, we were, just kind of an aside, I've used him in my pastoral ministry. I used him at a church in Lake Mississippi. Um, one, one week revival in this little community church, we had 104 people get saved. All right, That's a lot of people, particularly in a church that's running 250. That's a lot of folks. Uh, the next year, I think we had 208 people get saved. All right, that's insanity. I mean, that's revival breaking out. He just has this gifting to harvest souls for the kingdom. So Ken Freeman was invited to preach, and I was doing everything I could as a freshman in college to avoid attending one of these, um, one of these crusade evenings. But my mom and my dad were like, Scott, why don't you just come? Um, everybody's going to be there. Why don't you just attend? And so um, I had, I remember it was October 12th, 2004, and I was doing everything I could to avoid attending the Ken Freeman revival at my dad in this neighboring, my dad's church in this neighboring church, um, but nothing seemed to work to get me out of attending. I called all of my friends to see what they were up to, and it just happened that none of my friends that night were available to do anything. And I get home, there is nothing on TV, there is nothing to do. There's nothing to eat in the house. And I get home that afternoon, just about the time for the revival, and I realize I, it's like the Lord has put a blockade on any and every other option in my life except for one thing. Could you imagine what that is? To go to this revival. So I went to the revival service, and this sanctuary is um, relatively close to what this sanctuary is. And I remember I was sitting down here. Um, you guys have moved on me. I think y'all's seats are over here. All right, that's a really nasty trick to play on a new preacher that's trying to learn names and faces to, to move your seats on me. Um, anyway, I was sitting down here uh, for the revival service, and Ken was preaching a message about, he was preaching a message about test, a test to determine if you are a Christian, okay? Not that we earn our Christianity, but he was basically saying, if you're a Christian, then you'll be able to answer yes to all of these questions. And so he's preaching a message along those lines, and he's walking through them, and I'm thinking, because I, at 11 years old, I'd, um, I'd gone downstairs to my dad's room and he had shared the gospel, and we had prayed and cried together. I'm thinking, like, I've got this thing. Um, I, I got this thing in the, settled. So Ken's going through the list, and he's like, if, you, if you're a Christian, then you will have this, or you will have that, or you will have this. And we get to the end of the message, and I'm an absolute wreck. Because I realize it's not just that I can't check off all the boxes. I couldn't check off any of them. And I am just an absolute emotional wreck because I realized sitting right there in that pew, Salem Baptist Church on October 12th, 2004, listening to my family friend Ken Freeman preach that I was a sinner who was lost and going to hell. So he opened the invitation. And I know that y'all have a great history of offering invitations. I just want you to know, if you haven't learned yet, we will continue to offer an invitation. Um, in our worship services, Jesus always invited people to do something with what he said. So I figured that'd be a good example to follow. And so we, uh, Ken Freeman opened the invitation. 
And I didn't wait. Um, like I said this morning, don't wait for anything. When the invitation's open, step out and walk down. And we had the young lady um, in the second service. She didn't wait. I didn't even finish praying this morning. And she was already walking down the aisle, which I thought was fantastic. So he said, don't wait. Step out in the aisle as soon as the invitation's open. And so I did. I was an emotional wreck. I was sobbing. I was heaving. And I had snot and tears and all the good stuff coming down. And I walked down. And Ken saw me. And again, we've been, he's been a family friend for years. He saw me. And he was like, and he called over a friend named Wiley Jones, who um, was an older man in the church. He stepped in and he took me to the back and we talked about my decision when I was 11 and what the Lord was saying to my heart then. And this is what I came to terms with. When I was 11 years old, um, and this is so good, I, I pray that this will mean much to you as you hear this, because I know there's so many that grew up in the church that had these same experiences where they had a salvation experience when they were young, but never truly came to faith until they were later, and they're wondering how that could be. So Wiley was giving me some counsel, and and I came to this, I discovered this conclusion. When I was 11 years old, what I was really desiring and seeking was a relationship with my earthly father. Y'all saw my dad this morning. Many of y'all met my mom and dad. Fantastic father. Present, loving, um, faithful dad. But he was pastoring a growing church. He had just, when I was 11, he was just finishing a PhD. He, um, he was trying to be a great husband to my mom. He was trying to be a great dad to me and my five siblings. And he was teaching seminary courses on the side to supplement an income for a growing young family. And he was a busy guy. And when I was 11 years old, I just wanted to have a relationship with my earthly father. But what I needed was a relationship with my heavenly father. And coming to faith in Jesus Christ is about not having a relationship with your earthly father, but it's about getting a relationship with your heavenly father. And so on October 12, 2004, I confessed for the first time truly in my heart that I was a sinner that had no hope outside of Jesus And I asked him to not only forgive me of my sins, but to save me from myself. And I got saved. Gloriously, radically saved. Uh, My dad baptized me. I was able to give a testimony of being saved and being baptized by um, submersion, uh, believer's baptism. And then... um, God started to change me. He changed my friends. He changed my habits. He changed my hobbies. He changed my attitude. He changed my heart. He, he made me a new person, a new creation. He was reshaping me from the old Scott into the new person in the image of Jesus Christ. And, and because everything was changing, my future needed to change too. And so I transferred to Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, um, which is very familiar to some folks around here. And I went there for a year. Um, It was there that I, um, this is just something that's become of particular interest of late, but it was there that I I had a roommate for one semester named Ross Barnes, who is from Paducah, Kentucky. And it was the first time, who would have known back in 2005, that God was putting a man from Paducah in my life to give me exposure to a city that he would eventually, no idea, but that he would eventually call me and my family to move to, to be a part of the ministry there. Just realizing this in the past months. Had no other reason to to have any knowledge that Paducah was on a map. Don't want to hurt your feelings, but just saying. And so we, um, 
I spent a, a year in Union, and it was an incredible year. Man, what a, what a godly place that was. What an incredible um, just, just campus. If you have the opportunity to send your children there uh, or your grandchildren, it's expensive. But man, to put them in a godly environment where they can grow and be nurtured in their faith all the while growing academically, like what a blessing that is. And I'm not saying that there aren't other institutions that offer that. That's just my experience there. But midway through my year at Union, as good as it was and as much as I was growing, my dad accepted a call to be the pastor at First Baptist Church in Brandon, Mississippi. And he transferred there, which means that I lost a sizable tuition break for being an in-state minister's kid. And I made the decision that, um, that I wasn't ready to accept all of that new student loan. And so I transferred to a university in Mississippi. Um, I was planning on going to school to be an attorney. And so I was uh, studying English and economics. And I asked my mom, Um, where should I transfer to in Mississippi? And so she asked some of her friends in her new Sunday school class, where should my son go to school? And her friends told her that I should go to the University of Mississippi, which is Ole Miss. Uh, I had no connections there. I had no allegiance to Ole Miss. Some random lady that I had never met said that I should go there, so I just went there. I just enrolled and went to Ole Miss, um, and that's how I ended up at Ole Miss. There, it wasn't anything spectacular, but that was it. So I went to Ole Miss. Um, I went from being in a very concentrated, incredible Christian environment at Union University to then being in a very secular, dark environment called the University of Mississippi in Oxford, Mississippi, where I didn't have these concentrated, deep discipleship relationships and friendships, but now I had the choice to make. Would I continue with my secular pursuits, or would I abandon all of those things to live out my faith in the Lord? And this is something that I discovered. Two two important lessons. Number one, people who are wondering will often wonder towards the group that reaches out to them, right? So if you don't think it's important for you to constantly build relationships and continually invite people to church, let me tell you as a personal testimony that if a church would have just reached out to me while I was in Oxford, Mississippi, my years there would have been much different than they were. And number two, you need a church. Oh, you need a church. I know, I know y'all have the best church, but there are thousands of people in this community who don't. And they are wandering helplessly and hopelessly through this life, many on their way to hell, and they need a church. When I was at Ole Miss, um, I wandered from the Lord. It wasn't a glorious time. It wasn't a good time. But I was exactly what you would expect someone who's not being discipled or nurtured in their faith to be. And I I enjoyed the temptations of college and continued down that path until the Lord got my attention He got my attention when he really, my last year at Ole Miss, he really started challenging me on on this thought. Can you be saved without also being surrendered? And let me answer that question for you. You can't be saved without being surrendered. You cannot have Jesus as your Savior if he's not also your Lord. And one of the reasons that we have so many anemic And withering Christians is we have Christians that stand up all day and wave the banner and says, Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Savior, but then they walk the streets without being able to say, Jesus is my Lord. And Jesus challenged me. 
The Lord challenged me. Am I going to say I'm saved or am I going to allow the Lord, am I going to allow the Lord to be my leader, to be my Lord, to be my master? And he got my attention over the course of uh, about a year and a half. And in my last year at uh, Ole Miss, he challenged me to go on a mission trip. Um, he challenged me to, um, even though I was applying for law school, had already taken my LSATs and had applications, he challenged me to use the summer after my graduation to spend on the mission field. And so I connected with the International Mission Board, and they set me up with two missionaries, um, or a missionary couple, Jeremy and Crystal Nelson. They were serving in Peru in the Amazon rainforest um, of Peru, and their assignment and my assignment for one month was to go with Jeremy, and we were going to travel through the Amazon River Basin, uh, Rainforest Basin, and we were going to, number one, see if there were any tribes or villages that had been undiscovered or undocumented. So if there were any people groups that were wandering through the village, uh, through the rainforest that had never been discovered, if we found them, we were going to document them and try to make contact so that we could then send mission teams to reach them with the gospel. And then the other assignment we had was to take mission teams from local churches out into the Amazon rainforest to do mission work and to preach the gospel to the villages that we uh, that we'd found. So there was a group from Oklahoma that had come in during that summer, um, and we were stationed in Iquitos, Peru, and then we would take um, these little canoes and rafts out into the river. And this one group from Oklahoma came, and we were taking them out. It was about a 10-hour ride into the Amazon rainforest where we were going to meet this village of people to preach the gospel to them. And it's very primitive if you hadn't gathered that. Extraordinarily primitive environment. No electricity, remote, no running water. Really the only contact these people have with the outside world is when folks come through on a boat and then head out on a boat. But there's no industry. It's just tribes and villages living out in huts. And so we take them to this village and we're just doing some, some uh, very basic mission work, playing soccer and, and getting to know people. And then each night we'd get the villagers together and we would teach them something from the Bible or preach a, a lesson and then share the gospel to invite them to place their faith in Jesus. And one night, um, the team leader from this church in Oklahoma, he said, Scott, why don't you preach tonight? And I said, that's okay. <laughs> My job is to host you, it's not to preach. Uh, he said, no, why don't you preach tonight? And I had never preached before ever in my life. And he said, well, why don't you preach on um, the creation event? So I got my, my little Bible out and I was studying up on the days of creation. And we know that the Lord created the heavens, and the earth, and all that had been created in how many days? Six. And then he rested on the seventh day. Um, that's easy, but knowing what he did on each day, that's a little bit more complicated. And so I was trying to memorize it and I was taking quick notes so that I could teach these people. And that night we get uh, the villagers come together and I'm scheduled to preach about the creation. And we are as close to the equator as you can be without being on the equator, which means that the moon and the sky is just brilliant and it's bright. And we're in this little um, thatched together hut where the villagers were, to, were there. And I'm standing in the front of this dirt floor room. And there's a few um, nailed together benches, wooden benches throughout. And the wood on the hut is piecemealed together, but it's wide enough where you can see through the slats. It's candle lit, and we're preaching through it, and I get to the day where the Lord separates night and day, and I'm talking about how God gives us the moon and how the people get to see the brilliance of the moon. 
and how God created all of this so that we can know that there's a God. We can look up into the heavens and we can know that there's a creator and that he's a good God. And, and I told the translator, I said, is it possible for us just to go out and look up at the moon? And he said, sure. So we walked out. We ushered the few villagers there out. And I'm standing in front of this little community hut and I'm looking up at the moon and I'm trying to do my best in this very first attempt to preach about the creation event. And this brilliant full moon is above us. And I'm explaining that this is... God's creation to reveal himself, to re- reveal his glory and his goodness to us so that we can know he's God. And, and I remember very vividly that it was in that moment on that night when I was preaching to those people in Peru that God just impressed upon my heart, this is what I've made you for. I've made you to preach to people about me. And so after the service, I'm praying and thinking and just meditating on what God's doing. And I make the decision that I'm going to not just be saved, but I'm going to be surrendered. I'm going to be surrendered. The next day in the village, the next day in the village, um, we, we're going to continue to do some, some mission work. And one of the things that we had brought to the village one of the things that we had brought to the villagers was an axe head. Uh, because they're in the middle of nowhere, it's hard to come by good equipment. And these are agricultural people. And so we brought them an axe head, but we didn't have an axe handle. And so the villagers said, we know where a good tree is. Uh, we know where a tree is that has good wood for an axe handle. They said, why don't you come with us so we can go find the wood from this tree to cut to make an axe handle. Let's do it. So uh, we leave the village and we're walking down the path. And even though we're in the, middle of, uh, in the middle of the Amazon rainforest, literally six to ten hours away from civilization, is it okay if I walk? Okay. So we're, we're walking um, down these paths, these just game trails basically, and they're taking us out where these villagers say that they know of a tree that has a wood that's really good for axe handles. And they said, let's just walk down this path. And, um, and so we're walking, meandering just through the Amazon rainforest. It's really surreal. And he says, I think that I know where a tree is over this direction. And so we jump off of the path. And we're just walking through, it's me and Jeremy and a couple of villagers, and we're just walking through the Amazon rainforest off of the beaten path through the brush and through all of it. A couple of us have machetes and we're cutting it down and we're walking a few minutes and the villagers say, stop. Stop where you are. I mean, it could be anything at this point, all right? I mean, are we talking about a tiger? Or what are we stopping for? You know, anaconda? Help me here. So he says, stop. He said, we've never been here before. That's not good news. I told y'all, I told you guys that I got lost in the church. Um, you always want your God to know where they're taking you, all right? He said, we've never, we've never come this way before. And then he said this, and I'm telling you, it, it's such a God thing, but this is the way that God works. He said, where you're standing, no one has ever stood before. The day after I surrendered. 
Psalms 37, 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Junior Hill says so eloquently, if, the, if you get your desires before you get your delight, you'll never get delight in your desires. For years, I wanted to do something that no one else had ever done. But the day after, I chose to place my faith, my surrender in the Lord. The Lord said, now that you've got your delight in the right place, I'm willing to give you your desires. I came home. That's, that's awesome, by the way. It's just good. I came home, and um, I, I came home from Peru. It was the beginning of August, and um, I withdrew immediately all of my law school applications. I showed up to the Extension Center for New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary in Clinton, Mississippi, where they were holding classes, and I said, I need to attend seminary classes. I've surrendered to ministry. And the administrator, um, Eric, said, have you applied? I said, I have not. He said, have you paid? I said, I have not. He said, okay, well, typically we take care of those things first, but why don't you just go ahead um, and attend class today, and then we'll take care of the paperwork afterwards. Um, It seems like special treatment. My dad taught for the seminary, so we had a little inside track. Um, I started attending seminary uh, classes and then looking for a ministry position um, in churches. I was 24. I was a young guy. I was single. I had no ministry experience. Um, I didn't have a resume of any sort, um, but I started just calling churches looking for a job. Um, Jokingly, there was one church in Brandon, Mississippi that I asked to interview for a full-time children's youth position, and I walked into the room where the committee was, and they were so kind, and they sat me down. They said, okay, we're going to hand you the job description. We want you to read it and tell us what you think about it. And so I read the job description, and they said, well, what do you think about it? And I said, I think it's impossible. I don't know how anybody could do this job. And they said, well, thank you for coming in. I don't know that this is the job for you. And I said, I don't think it's for me either. Um, And then a couple weeks later, I get a call from a guy named Ron Harrison at Eastside Baptist Church in Pearl, Mississippi, who had a part-time youth minister position open, um, and he was willing to give me a chance. And it was an incredible ministry. I served there um, for a number of years. I met Carly there. I need to tell you guys how Carly and I met, but I'm saving that one because it's so good. And in this setting, Carly might speak up, and I don't want her messing up the story, all right? It's too good. She and I remember it differently. She thinks I exaggerate it, but I tell it straightforward, and it is a good story about how I met Carly and swept her off of her feet. I'll tell you all about it later. Um, So I met Carly, and we've been in pastoral ministry um, ever since. Um, The emphasis of my ministry, what God has called me to, what I believe the pastor it is called to, is is three primary purposes. Uh, The first is prayer. The second is preaching. And the third is pastoral care. All right? Um, And this is a part of my testimony. This is a part of who God has made me. It is my calling. This is what I am responsible to the Lord for. Um, and, and at the end of the day, the Lord will hold me on judgment, and He will say, what have you done for the people that I've entrusted to you? And I'll need to be able to say, I've prayed for them, and I have preached the truth to them, and I have walked with them. I didn't always have the right words, but I was right there with them. And so um, those are the priorities of pastoral ministry, and they're in that order. And I, tell, uh, I told your committee, and I tell people, the first, the first and greatest priority that I have is to prayer. Um, what good is a preacher that is not praying for his people? 
Because I tell you, we have one Father who is generous and good, and He has the resources I don't. But I do have the ability to go to Him on your behalf. You can go to Him too, but I can too. And so praying for people, our people, my people, is central and it's key. Uh, Preaching the truth is also uh, critical. It's central. It's not just preaching any truth. It's preaching the truth of God's Word, which we affirm to be infallible. We affirm to be inspired. We believe that it is complete, Old Testament and New Testament, that it does not lead, um, it has no error and it doesn't fail to lead to salvation, but it does. It contains truth and it does lead us to salvation if we will trust in it. And we need to teach people God's Word. One of the reasons that churches... One of the reasons that churches, I'm speaking in a very general sense, have such anemic and failing Christians is because we have biblically illiterate Christians. We have Christians that don't know the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have Christians that don't understand the difference between Jesus' teachings and Oprah's talks. And I, I want to tell you, we can't point our fingers at them and say shame on them because I'll tell you disciples are responsible for making disciples and if they don't know it's because somebody forgot to tell them. Which means if we know someone that does not have biblical literacy that doesn't understand God's word then we in part have to take responsibility for that. You can't expect them to know what we haven't let them know is expected. And so teaching God's word and preaching God's word, and I was so thankful to, to be able to preach God's word. I, I believe that preaching should be, um, it should be inspirational. It should inspire people towards a godly life, but it also, also should be instructional. It should teach people how to live a godly life, but also how to study God's word so that they can also disciple themselves and make disciples of others. There is a time where baby Christians have to learn how to feed themselves on the truth of God's Word. And so the preacher should have a primary responsibility of teaching the truth of God's Word, but also teaching people how to study the truth of God's Word for themselves and handing it off. I think y'all have a fancy saying for that, passing the torch. You heard it before? It's, It's central to what we do. Prayer and preaching, and then finally pastoral care. Uh, when we had the deacons breakfast a few weekends ago, one of your deacons, I can't remember who it was, asked me about pastoral counseling. Um, and this question has come up, you know, how much pastoral counseling, or how much counseling do I provide? And it's, it's critical for me to understand that I'm not a professional counselor. It is irresponsible, and it would be a gross disservice to someone for me to step into the room and act like I'm a professional counselor. No, what I am is I'm a pastor that has pastoral care and concern for the people that God has put around me. And so pastoral care and pastoral counseling is not the same as professional counseling. My calling is to care for people. And a pastor means to walk with people through life, to shepherd them, to walk with them, to be beside them. It means to be up close and to walk beside them. That doesn't mean that you have to have all the answers. That doesn't mean that I have to know all of the solutions. It just means that I have to be available and present when possible. And God has done so much in my life to teach me what it means just to be a pastor that cares for the people. Carly and I have prayed for you guys for a long time. 
back in um, March, I was doing this interim. Let me, let me go to Oxford, Mississippi. I was in Oxford, Mississippi. Um, we had Jane Kennedy. I'll tell that story later. She was born with a, a major, um, a very severe brain condition called hydrocephalus that was very advanced, and we didn't know if we would have her. I'm going to tell this story in fuller detail later. Um, I moved to Oxford, Mississippi in October. We discover we have this pregnancy with a child that has this severe condition in November, the church was so good to us. North Oxford was so good to us to give us all the time we needed to take care of that um, immediate pressing need. We have Jane Kennedy. She has a brain surgery two days after she's born. Um, We go through several months of making sure that she's good. The church has given me all the time I need to take care of my family and maintain those responsibilities. And then finally, we get Jane to a place where she's kind of stable and Carly and I have our family and we're growing and the church is growing And then in March 2020, something happened in Oxford, Mississippi. COVID showed up. Did y'all have that here? Oh, good. If y'all have had it, then we don't have to have it again. Please, yeah. Um, So COVID came in, and just like with you guys, it rocked everybody's world. And the only good thing about COVID is that you could have assurance as a pastor that you were making the wrong decision at all times. Like that, was one of the only, that was one of the only certainties about COVID is that you were wrong all the time. P- staff, pastors, you know what I'm talking about? Hank's like, don't remind me. So COVID comes down. We're in Oxford. We're, we have Jane. We have uh, COVID come. And then we're trying to work our way out of COVID. In November of 2020, uh, we have, uh, we're getting ready for the the 2020 presidential election, and we lead the church to 40 days of prayer and fasting. And during that time of prayer and fasting, we're supposed to be praying as a church and praying for our nation and praying for the presidential candidates and all of those things. But the Lord impresses upon my heart um, three particular prayer topics. And, and I spent 40 days fasting and praying over these topics um, in no particular order. Lord, I'm exhausted Physically, emotionally, spiritually, mentally, I am absolutely exhausted. And I don't know if I'm burned out, but if I'm not burned out, I'm pretty close. And I need you to renew me in any way possible. Uh, Lord, you called me to a PhD. You called me to a PhD in 2013 that I've been working on full time. And I don't know how to pastor a church and finish this thing. But I know you've called me to it. And so I need you to either give me the strength and resources to finish this, or I need you to give me permission to quit. And number three, God, I am, because I'm tired and because I'm so busy, I am not being a very good husband, and I am not a present father. And that one was breaking my heart, because I can remember that, and it wasn't, I didn't want to neglect my family, I wasn't running around or anything of that nature. I was just busy and invested. I I remember there were a few times when one of my children would get hurt and I would be at home and rather than jumping up and running to dad, they would jump up and run past me to get to mom. There was another time when Everett, my middle child, we were at home one night and he looked at me and he he said, Dad, do you even know how to smile? Man, it still hurts. And so I spend this uh, 40 days praying and fasting over these topics. In February of 2022, two years later, 
I get a call from Preston Nix at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, and he tells me, he said, Scott, um, you have reached the ninth year of a seven-year degree program. He said, you have figured out every loophole to extend this program beyond its intended reach, um, and you have, you have until, uh, it was February, yeah, he said, you have until March the 1st to turn in your dissertation or to withdraw from the program. And I was like, Lord, this is not good. Because I have not written anything. Um, and you have to write a dissertation, which is a book. And so anyway, um, Colleen and I prayed. The Lord opened up an incredible, incredible opportunity for me to resign from my church and to provide for my family. And so I did, by faith, without any other job, without any other way of providing for my family, I resigned from my church in Oxford, Mississippi, and I spent the next three weeks in a hotel room um, in Mississippi and Louisiana, writing a dissertation, and I finished that thing. By God's grace, it was done. I walked in um, May, and it was when I was in New Orleans that I met a guy. Um, I met a guy from Jackson, Alabama, who uh, was the music minister there, and he asked me if he could have my number. He called me a couple weeks later. He said, hey, our pastor just resigned to go to another church, and we need someone to come and fill in and preach for us. So I said, well, I have nothing else to do. I'm just preaching an itinerant ministry right now, and so I went and preached in Jackson, Alabama. Uh, Before I even preached there, they had elected me to be their interim pastor. All right? And I don't know. It does not say anything about me. It says something about those kinds of people. They hired me sight unseen, Um, but it really was a good situation. Um, We went there and we served that church, and I'm getting somewhere with this. Uh, We went there and we served this church for a period of time, and then in March of last year, um, we had come to the conclusion that God was doing something with our family, but it wasn't going to be in Jackson, Alabama. We were called there to be their interim, to lead them and to love them while they searched for a pastor. And so we had set, we met with the personnel committee and with the deacons, and we had set a date by which we were going to exit the church, whether they had a pastor or not. Um, because God was calling us, but he wasn't calling us to be their pastor. Um, there were some that wanted us to be their pastor, and they were really kind to us. So we set a date. That date was a little fluid, but it, ultimately we set it as August the 1st. A couple of weeks later, we felt like the Lord was leading us to make some drastic decisions with our family, not knowing where he was going to lead us. And so we had a home in Oxford, Mississippi, and we decided to list it. And it sold... Uh, for over-asking price within one day. And so I was, um, Carly and I were walking by faith, but we were jobless and we were homeless. And a couple of weeks later, I get an email from this random group of people from Lone Oak First Baptist Church that said, we received your resume from a mutual friend And we were wondering if you might be interested in submitting your resume and your name for our open vacancy for senior pastor. I had no idea who you guys were. I had a friend from, I had a roommate from college that was from Paducah. So I reached out and got some phone numbers to find out if y'all were crazy or not. Carla and I did some talking, we did some praying, we did some studying, and your committee did the same with us as they did with other candidates, Um, and we decided that we would be interested in exploring what God might be up to. And so when we got here, 
to the point where we felt like the Lord was calling us to serve and to join Lone Oak First Baptist Church. And when the committee got to the point that they were wanting to nominate us to the church, there was nothing holding us back. And I am so thankful that many years before, the Lord taught me that there's a difference between just being saved and being surrendered. Being surrendered means that you don't hold any alter, alternative plan in case God doesn't come through. And I want to tell you, if you want to experience the full glory of God, when He calls you to something, when He calls you to get up and to go, you need to commit entirely and you need to throw out the window all your plan B's. And I will tell you from recent experience that it is some of the scariest moments of your life. But they are also some of the most rewarding moments of life. And so the Lord has saved me and He has redeemed me. He has called me. And I am beyond thrilled for the opportunity to be here at Lone Oak First Baptist Church to allow our story to continue with yours. I want to lead us in a word of prayer and then we're going to be dismissed this evening. Lord, I thank you for your love and for your goodness. I am so grateful, God, that um, despite the valleys and the mountaintops, I'm so thankful, Lord, that you allowed me to have a story to share. And God, I pray that that story would impact, would lead others to consider whether or not they're simply calling themselves saved or if they can give testimony to also being surrendered. And there are men and women in this room, Lord, I believe, who are, um, God, who are, are good Christian people, but they're not surrendered. And you're calling them to something more. You're calling them to surrender to missions. You're calling them to surrender to be more generous. You're calling them to be uh, a more vocal witness in their workplace or in their community or with their neighbors. But Lord, you're calling them to more than what they're giving you. And my prayer, God, it's first that this testimony would bring glory to you because of what you've done in my life through patient grace and continuous mercy. But second, Lord, secondly, Lord, I'm praying that this testimony would be meaningful in the lives of those who feel convicted to surrender their life to you. Before I close that prayer, I want to let you know that if you need to make the decision to be surrendered... And it doesn't matter if you're young or old. But if you are convicted and being tugged on that you need to be surrendered. When we dismiss, there's going to be some ministers that will hang around the front here. One of the staff here. Would you grab one of them and say, hey, can we talk for a second? And would you ask them to pray for you and to encourage you and to give you counsel. So that you can be a surrendered believer and experience the goodness of God in a fuller way. In Jesus' name, amen.